Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, Abraham, Father of All Who Believe, as we hear a message entitled, Sin and Its Consequences. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 to 6, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Perhaps you've heard about the man who was hired to take a census in the hills of East Tennessee. He was to go among some of the poor families who lived there, and and he was a little worried about what he would encounter because he'd heard so many strange stories from that region. And so as it would happen to be, he came to the first door, and he knocked on that door, and a young girl of about 12 years of age opened the door. And the interviewer asked her, is your mom home? And the girl said, no, she ran off with the moonshiner, and I haven't seen her for about a year. Well, the man was so sorry to hear that, but he wondered if her dad was home. Well, now she replied, he pokes in his head about once a month just to take a bath, and he's gone again, no telling when he's going to turn up next. Well, the man was so amazed, he knew he couldn't take a census from a 12-year-old girl, so he tried again. He said, have you got an older sister? Well, ah, shucks, the girl said, she's not around here. She's in jail for shooting at the sheriff. Well, said the man, maybe you've got an older brother in the house. And she replied, now he's at Harvard. (laughs) Well, the census taker was astonished. Harvard, you mean Harvard University? Yup, she said, Harvard University. Well, the census taker was scrambling to take it all in. And so he asked, well, what's he studying? And the girl said, well, nothing. They're studying him. (laughs) Well, I don't mean to suggest caricatures. I mean, however, to make the case that you don't need to look far to find dysfunctional families. Indeed, brokenness and disappointment and abuse and sorrow, those are just a few of the words that come to mind when you talk about family. Yeah, I know that it was God's idea to give us a family, but like everything else that has been touched by the fall, families can be the places where the highest amount of joy is found, but also the greatest amount of pain. We're about to see Abram's family become a highly dysfunctional family. You know, for the last two broadcasts, I've examined the theological ramifications of the decision that Abram and Sarah made to have a child through Hagar. Sarah is barren, and Hagar, her handmaiden, will have intercourse with her husband and bear a child for her husband. Now, as I've said, there are theological ramifications of this decision, but for today, I want us to consider the practical, everyday impact that this decision had on Abram's family. It might have been an acceptable cultural practice among the wealthy that if a wife was unable to conceive that she would have children through another woman, but culturally acceptable or not, the impact of this simply can't be overlooked. And for our purposes today, I want us to consider Sarah's counsel to her husband that he would have relations with her handmaiden as counsel to sin. And Abram's agreement to accept her counsel is complicity in her sin. Now, in a sense, we have a parallel here. Eve eats the forbidden fruit and offers it to her husband. But in this case, Sarah simply counsels her husband to eat forbidden fruit, and he does. He's fully responsible. Now, when I talk this way, I'm sensitive not to want to mock Abram and Sarah. For after 4,000 years, I mean, they're hardly here to defend themselves. Furthermore, we're more than aware that this man's faith is the model of faith for all who believe. But let's also remember that this man's faith was developing and it was growing. 
And along the way, there are reversals that bear consequences. And discussing this can bring great hope to men and women who have made mistakes and committed sins in their own families. It need not be the end. There there can be redemption for broken and hurting and dysfunctional families. Now let's read our account. Genesis 16, 1 to 6. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So let's begin our account by examining Sarai's reasoning. Her first words to her husband are these. Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, is she right to say those things? Was it God that was responsible for her barrenness? Now, I know that there are people who deny this idea. Some will say, well, no, no, it's the devil who creates barrenness as well as any other malady that afflicts human beings. You know, others will say, no, this is simply the result of living in a fallen world. I mean, God has nothing to do with it. It's merely the result of things being broken. Nothing works the way it's supposed to. That's all that's happening here. You know, I suppose in part some of those things are true, but listen to how the scriptures define it. In Job 2 verse 10, after Job was afflicted and having lost all his wealth and suffering the death of his family, listen to what he says to his wife. He says, shall we accept good from the Lord and not trouble? Or listen to Job's testimony found in Job 121. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So if you asked Job about the death of his children, he would have answered, it was the Lord who has taken away. Now, those of us who are shocked by that, listen to Naomi's testimony after she suffered the death of her husband and her two sons. It's recorded in Ruth 1, 20 to 21. There she says, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. And in Exodus 4, verse 11, we have God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. You remember that Moses says he doesn't want to go to Egypt to set Israel free. For one, says Moses, I'm not very good at public speaking. And at that point, God answers. And there we read, And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? See, notice that God's not apologizing for muteness or deafness or blindness, but he actually takes credit for it. Now, I know this is shocking for some, and they've been trained to think otherwise, but consider Lamentations 3, 37 to 38. There we read, Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Now, I could go on and on quoting verse after verse, but I think we get the idea. It was Martin Luther who said that the devil is none other than the unwilling servant of God. 
Now, put it all together, we might say that the the difference between Satan and God is a difference of intent. See, imagine a young man tackling an elderly woman on the street. See, there's all the difference in the world if he tackles her to prevent her from being hit by an out-of-control car or if he tackles her to steal her purse. Intent is everything. No one condemns the tackle if it has a greater purpose in mind, and that's exactly what God does. You know, we could spend a great deal of time talking about the good intentions of God when disaster strikes, and that's beyond today's broadcast, and I'm going to leave that discussion to another time. What I do wish to point out is that Sarah has it right. God is meticulously sovereign. If she's barren and unable to have children, it is because of God. His rulership of the universe has prevented her from having children. Now, what Sarah doesn't know is why God has prevented her from having children, because we know the end of the matter. We know that this is due to God's greater purposes. When she has a son in the end, it will come about because of a miracle, and that will show that Isaac's birth in the world signals that God himself is stepping into the world in order to bring about our redemption. See, without this miracle, we wouldn't know how amazing the moment of Isaac's birth was. We wouldn't see God's miracle of redemption. And that's why Sarai was barren, because God has a greater purpose for her, greater than she could ever have imagined. But Sarah assumes the fact that she couldn't have children must mean that God has rejected her. And in that, she comes to the wrong conclusion about her suffering. She assumes the worst, and that assumption leads her to sin. You know that sometimes we sin because we don't understand God. We encounter suffering and hardship and disappointment and a devastating turn of event, and we assume, therefore, that God has rejected me, and out of that, we turn to darkness. So what is that? Well, that's called unbelief. It's a failure to believe that God is merciful at all times to those whom he has chosen. Hey, this is Rika Seward, and I'll be joining Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway for the Laugh Again 5th Anniversary Caribbean Cruise aboard the Royal Caribbean's Oasis of the Seas. Join us for a week of laughter, inspirational music, worship, and spiritual refreshment. This is a cruise for the entire family, and beyond the incredible entertainment and amenities that the Oasis of the Seas provides, we'll have opportunity to enjoy all the activities available in ports of call, including Labadee, Jamaica, and Cozumel. Are you looking for a winter escape? Join me, Rika Seward, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and the Laugh Again team for this incredible, fun-filled journey and return refreshed and restored, both physically and spiritually. It's all happening this coming February 3rd to 10th, and space is limited. So call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca. Sarah puts Hagar into her husband's arms because of her sin and her doubt that God's intentions for her are good intentions. And Abram, for his part, agrees with her for perhaps many of the same reasons. But the outcome, the consequences of the act would begin immediately. Verse 4 simply says, And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. 
And by reading of the passage, it seems to indicate that she conceived immediately, and this in contrast to the 10 years that would have elapsed in which Sarah was trying to get pregnant. Now, that matter would not have been lost on both Abram and Sarah. And upon conception, Hagar's status instantly changes. Hagar would have gone from being a handmaiden to becoming what was then called a concubine. Now, a concubine is a secondary wife, one that doesn't have the same status as a primary wife, but one who has some form of status nonetheless. It was most likely true that a concubine was never thought of as a wife in the way that we would think of a wife today, but that a concubine had some form of formal relationship to her man and that she was called a wife. And that's why verse 3 calls Hagar Abram's wife. As an example of what I'm talking about, Judges 19 verse 9 provides us with an interesting cultural insight. Now, without going into the background of the passage, verse 9 simply says, And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law said. Now, without going into what he said, the passage calls the man's concubine's father, the man's father-in-law. Now, that's true. She is his wife. Now, that would indicate that the nature of the relationship between a man and his concubine had some form of formal relationship in the ancient world. Now, she is not a traditional wife, but on the other hand, she's not the woman he's just having sex with. Concubines had a formal relationship, and that relationship seems to carry on perhaps even for a lifetime. And that's what Hagar had become, Abram's concubine. And instantly, Sarah is made to feel the change in relationship, and instantly she notices that she feels threatened by what's just transpired. Hagar is no mere surrogate. She has entered into their family. And then years later, when we come to Genesis 21, we're going to find that Abram and Sarah make a very difficult and embittered decision to cast Hagar and Ishmael out of the family. And what happens there seems to have been some kind of a divorce. After all, concubines did not have the rights that other wives would have had. But what we can see is that Abram and Sarah made a decision to follow the accepted cultural practices of the day. After Abram, Isaac would have but one wife. But after Isaac, Jacob, because of the most unusual situation he had with his father-in-law, would have two sisters as wives, along with their handmaidens, who themselves would become Jacob's concubines or his secondary wives. Now, we also know that later on, David married the daughter of King Saul, a woman named Michal. Then Michal was taken from him, given to another man. And after that, he marries a woman named Ahinoam of Jezreel. Then he marries a widow, Abigail. Then the daughter of the king of Geshur. Then a woman named Maacah. Then a woman named Hagith. Then another woman, Abital. And then another woman, Eglah. Now, on top of that, he engages in an adulterous relationship with the wife of his military man, and eventually he marries her. Her name is Bathsheba. I mean, all that to say, the idea that kings would have a harem of wives was a common practice in that day. David followed a commonly accepted practice as his father Abraham had done. And when we come to David's son Solomon, the situation goes from bad to the extreme. So let me read 1 Kings 11, verse 1, where it says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. And then in verse 3, we read he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. 
Indeed, Solomon's harem would have rivaled any king in the ancient world. Now, this practice of ancient kings acquiring harems was forbidden by the law of God. It's forbidden in Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, but this law was simply neglected and disobeyed. And that brings us all the way back to Abram and Sarah. We know that they lived before the giving of the law, but they may well have understood God's intention from creation. Genesis 2, after describing in some detail the the creation of the man and the woman, then takes the time to explain what God had in mind when he created the sexes. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is, the two, not the three or the four, or whatever computation you might have, but one man and one woman sharing sexual intimacy as a lifetime union. I mean, that's God's intention for humanity. And it is this that Abram and Sarai desecrated in their anxiety and in their unbelief. And if I might for a moment apply this to our situation, most Muslim nations in the world today allow for polygamy, but all nations that were shaped by the Christian faith have made it into law the forbidding of this practice. Now, in our culture, which is, of course, a post-Christian culture, polygamy, to the most part, is still frowned upon, but homosexual unions are celebrated, and so also is simply living together, and what has been called serial polygamy, I mean, that's one relationship after the next, so also are a number of gender-fluid kinds of sexual relationships. This has all become common cultural practices in our day. And what's interesting to me is how often the culturally normative practice in our day affects people of faith. And just like Abram and Sarai, the accepted cultural practices of our day find their way into the Christian faith. So please see how culture, rather than God's intention, can become our go-to decision. But from Abram and Sarah, we learn that, that life's full of unanticipated consequences. I mean, the first one was that the minute Hagar's status changed, she began to look with contempt on Sarai. Hagar knows that she has given Abram what Sarai could not, and she no longer views Sarai as her master. Tables have turned. Now, we're not told how this played itself out, but we can almost imagine it. I mean, perhaps words were spoken, or or perhaps Hagar spoke with contempt of Sarai to other people on the staff or others in Abram's large entourage. But whatever it was, one thing is sure. She was going to let others know that Sarah had been taken down a few rungs on the ladder, and it was high time. After all, she had provided Abram with nothing. And in turn, Sarai feels it deeply and blames Abram. Verse 5 says, may the wrong done to me be on you. And then she adds, may the Lord judge between me and you. And what she's saying is that in her view, it was Abram that allowed this attitude to develop. In his delight to have a son, he had allowed Sarai to be denigrated in front of all the company of people that were attached to Abram. She was no longer the queen of the house, and Abram was okay with that. So let's stop and consider what that means. Please understand that all human actions that are done outside of the will of God for our lives have consequences often beyond what we could have anticipated. Our choices affect not only us, but our friends, our family, our community, and even generations to come after us. I remember some years ago, I had been called to do one of those funerals that every pastor has done, but which seems so overwhelmingly dark. It was, it was a suicide. 
a young man had taken his life and, and left behind him a wife and three beautiful young girls. Only the oldest was in school. I came to the family and found the parents of the young man there. They were trying to comfort their daughter-in-law and their grandchildren. And I found out in my time that I spent in that house that the father of that young man had grown up in a Christian home, that he had been the only member of his family that had abandoned his faith. And as the years went by, he married a non-believing woman, a woman of no faith at all, and they had children and raised them outside of any conception of faith. The children married also outside of the faith, and the grandchildren were born outside of the faith. And when the day of trouble came, and there they were sitting around a living room without hope and without faith, I looked into the eyes of the grandfather whose decisions not only had affected him, his decisions had affected three little girls who that day asked me two questions that completely broke my heart. The first was, did daddy love us? And the second was, is daddy in heaven now? Wow. I wonder if anyone anticipated how the choice of one man would go on for generations. Now, not only do our decisions go well beyond ourselves, this is especially true when it comes to our sexual sin. It's never just about your right to choose your own way. Your sexual sin will spill over far beyond yourself. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, The rock, his ways are perfect and all his ways are just. God's ways are always perfect and if we follow him, we will never live in regret. John, as you're speaking, a question came to mind, and it's this. If we're struggling with the consequences of past sin and we're getting discouraged, can we still find some hope? Oh, yeah, there's so much hope to be found. First of all, God's forgiveness is complete. We are forgiven when we come before God confess our sins. Uh, we are welcome in his presence. But on the, on the subject of consequences, I'd like to say this. If Romans 8.28 is true, that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love him, we've got to believe that even the consequences that were unanticipated and unwelcome, I mean, those consequences will still work out for our long-term eternal good. God will use even those things in such a way that we'll turn and thank him for all the good that he has done in our lives, even in those horrible situations. That's a great word of encouragement. Thanks, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It's difficult to imagine what people you pass by every day may be experiencing in their lives. Many carry silent burden, pain, loss, and disappointment. Recently, we were given the opportunity to hear a powerful testimony of a young woman who had experienced the ultimate grief, the loss of a child. I was moved by the telling of her story, and these words she spoke, my baby boy, whom my body had grown and nourished for almost nine months, whose entire future I had mapped out in my mind, was gone in an instant. This is one of so many stories we're privileged to receive from our listeners, people experiencing pain and grief but many whom discover new hope in the pages of God's Word. Thank you for the part you play in allowing the Bible to be taught through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. And please continue to support Bible teaching across our nation, teaching that brings a message of ultimate hope found in Jesus. 
And if you haven't already asked for our free 2019 scripture calendar, Bringing the Nation Back to the Bible, please call and ask for it as our gift to you today. Remember, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.